La cour, the court. Good morning. Please take your seats. Dans le dossier la presse. In the matter of La Presse Inc. versus Frederick Silva et al. For the appellant La Presse, Marc-André Nadon and Axel Fournier. For the respondent, His Majesty the King, Nicolas Abran and Nathalie Kleber. For the respondent, Frederick Silva, Alex Savoie. Mr. Nadon, you have the floor. Good morning, Justices. Today, in 45 minutes, I will cover everything in our factum, and my colleague, Mr. Fournier, for about 15 minutes, will deal with some of the more specific points about the restrictive interpretation of criminal law and foreign precedents. To begin with, I'd like to tell you what you probably already know, and that is that we're no longer asking the court to deal with the alternative argument, which had to do with the Dagenet-Mentuck test. Forget about that. We, we've dropped that argument. So the, there's only really one question at issue, one issue at bar here, and that is the interpretation of section 648 of the criminal code. In our view, the text is clear. It only applies after the jury has been selected. What 648 seeks to protect is an existing jury, a real existing jury that is, already has its mission underway. Well, the purpose of 648 is to ensure a fair trial to ensure that, the, that no illegal evidence is put before the jury. So whether it's evidence that comes to light once the trial is underway, but not, it's not, for example, voir dire evidence that, that should be excluded. Uh, so whether or not the jury's been selected, the purpose is still the same, is it not? Well, we disagree, Chief Justice. For us, 648 is much more specific. It's, it's, it's very specific and limited. It's only to protect an existing jury that is in the heart of its role. Well, you can't ignore reality. And many years ago, you could do a, jury a murder trial with jury in two or three weeks. Now it's two or three months uh, bottom line, uh, there's the Jordan, uh, there's, there's the decision and all the issues of uh, 
the time frames, the delays, and and so on, and uh, judges that can't be replaced uh, quickly. So there are all kinds of delays inherent in murder trials. Things have changed. And a lot of voir dires used to happen after the jury was select selected, but now they happen before because you need to save time. So in m many cases with murder trials, the judge is designated weeks or months ahead of time, and they have to try to deal with all kinds of preliminary matters so that when the jury is selected, they're not sent home for a week. They start with the, the prosecution's evidence immediately. So uh, shouldn't we be taking reality into account here? Well, the appellant is sensitive to that, but the answer is Dajne Mentak addresses those concerns. Dajne Mentak is a, a discretionary power which uh, responds perfectly well to those situations. Well, Dajne Mentak is the practical solution in today's criminal law world with all the situations the Chief Justice uh, referred to. Do you think uh, Dajne Mentak is going to solve all problems? Well, I'm not saying that Dajne Mentak is going to improve the situation, but what I am saying is that that test is completely consistent with precedent and current practice shows that Dajne Mentak motions by the Crown they happen all the time. Notice is given, the issues are argued, it, it works, uh, I, I, I can't give evidence here, but it works smoothly. Uh, and the example of Mr. Silva is a very good example of the typical cooperation between media and counsel. Uh, it works seamlessly. So to answer your question, will Dajne Mentak improve the situation? Well, I don't think the goal, at least from my perspective, is to improve the situation, but will it be consistent with the goal of having rapid uh, court proceedings? Uh, uh, or is it going to speed them up? I, I would say no. Council, I think you're getting the cart before the horse a little bit here. It's not your fault, but you said that it's a, a matter of interpretation. And your colleagues are arguing that your method is anti-modern, if you will, that it runs counter to current thinking in criminal law. So your friends argue that you're doing a disembodied interpretation of Section 648. You're reading it in isolation. You're ignoring the context, other provisions like 555.1 with the case management, uh, with uh, show cause, preliminary uh, inquiries and pretrial conferences. You're ignoring all those other situations. And, and you're going back to 1972 thinking instead of having an approach that's uh, in keeping with today's state of the law. Are you talking about the Rizzo Bell Express view? Uh, are you following those decisions? Justice Kasserer, I would say yes. Our approach is based on the text, 
That's the starting point. So our proposed method begins with the text itself, the wording of the provision in question. It's so clear, so obviously that should have an impact. And our method is not contrary to the modern interpretation principles because a modern interpretation favors our interpretation. So there's the internal consistency and so on. So everything we're arguing is consistent with modern principles of interpretation. And there are some philosophical differences at play here. There are several courts that have found that this provision could apply only before. Well, one of the precedents you're relying on is from a leading Quebec judge, and he said that 648 can only be interpreted one way. Is that the modern reading when you look at 645.5 and the obvious connection between that provision and 648? When you look at the new temporal context uh, following the Charter, is there really only one way to read 648? That's an excellent question. I can't say there's only one interpretation available, but what I can say with certainty here today is that the most plausible and probable interpretation is ours. I think clearly that's the interpretation that has to be uh, adopted. Logically, it's the only interpretation that strikes the right balance. What's the purpose of 648 in your view? The purpose of the provision is to protect the guarantee under 11D, so a fair trial, and also the impartiality of the jury, because that's inextricably linked within this critical time frame. So, as I said, it's once there's a jury, an existing jury that's at work, not a potential hypothetical jury that may or may not one day be selected, which is basically all Canadians who maybe read the news and who might one day be called for jury duty. So, when 645.5 was enacted, uh, When does the trial begin, in your view, when the judge is hearing of voir dire, has the trial begun? Well, that's not an easy question to answer. I did read my friend's factums, and I did read the precedents about 645, uh, and talking about uh, a f the, how a trial can have different phases. Uh, but what I would say here is that, once again, the idea of a trial under 648 has to take into account the purpose of the provision itself and the wording of the provision itself. A trial, when it, when the question of when a trial begins or not is open to debate. Uh, 
because there may be preliminary matters, are those part of the trial or not? It's, it's debatable. But I'm very aware that we're perhaps no longer in an era when the idea of a trial begins automatically when the accused is placed in the jury's charge. We're no longer there, perhaps, but for the sake of interpretation, I can't imagine here that the idea of a trial can only apply after the jury selected. But it's interesting. What you're saying is that we're only dealing with a jury that's been already been selected. Uh, when that's the only time we have to start thinking about the fairness of the trial. But if there were evidence, illegal evidence, so to speak, that was heard by the general public, the jury will be selected from among that general public. Some of those members of the general public could become juries. Does that make any difference? Will they they'll be contaminated? I don't think so. I don't think so because now there's a certain ambiguity under charter principles, but decisions are very clear about the confidence we need to have about the willingness of jurors to do their job properly. There's Westray, Vermed, Hubbard, Corbett, and so many others. You know these cases uh, better than I do, but we have to have faith in the jurors. Well, we can have faith in them, but there's still a certain reality we need to take into account. The internet didn't used to exist. Uh, so people still read newspapers, some do, but uh, jurors are told at the beginning of a trial, do not go on the internet, do not go looking for information. Just consider the evidence that's put before you here in the courtroom. So I think some that go on the internet anyway uh, to look things up. But if we were to follow your interpretation, there is evidence that could be ruled inadmissible by the judge that could contaminate the jury. Well, you know, Chief Justice, the fundamental difference is this. When before the jury is selected and you have an open pool of jurors that the jury doesn't exist. So there are controls in place for jury selection. So questions are asked of potential jurors. Do you know anything about this case? Have you read anything about this case? We ask very tough questions. So the court is in a position to screen potential jurors and they can rule out jurors that are not suitable. And the other thing I would say is that when a juror has been selected and they're doing their job, they're a real existing juror, they're much more sensitive to news. They know that they're not supposed to be listening to the news if they, if they know something about a, a weapon that might have been used. So, of course, a juror, in that case, they're sensitive to the case. They could be influenced by uh, evidence heard outside the courtroom. So, but it's a much more critical zone. The risks are higher in that time frame, because before there's a jury, 
we don't even know whether jurors are following the news, if they know what's going on. So the risk parameters are completely different before and after the jury is selected. And when you look at uh, parliamentary debate, I can only conclude that Parliament drew a clear distinction between the pre- and post-selection phases of the jury. Council, is it fair to say that you're, I'm over here, that your argument is based on uh, an idea of the purpose of 645? In other words, that there are two purposes. First of all, it's the the efficiency and effectiveness of uh, proceedings before a jury because certain things have to be dealt with before a jury is selected. So that's one purpose. But your argument is based on a second purpose and that is to allow for any arguments that used to be subject to a publication ban. It's no. to, the, the, your point is that Parliament wanted to allow for publication of all of those preliminary matters. But it's hard for me to see how that was Parliament's purpose to allow for openness of any arguments under 648. Justice, I'm not sure about that uh, two-pronged purpose argument, but what I would say about 645 is that Parliament did not want to allow any publication of all preliminary matters, but what Parliament said was that Dajnay Mentak is adequate, it's sufficient, it's clear when you read the parliamentary debates, Yes, but Dajne Mentuk is a discretionary test. A dis a, it's a discretionary power. But according to you, the basic position, the default should be that everything can be published unless a party moves a motion for, dis for the discretion exercised under Dajne Mentuk. But the basic position, in your view, the default position, should be that everything can be published. Yes, indeed. If we go on the general principle of access to publication that applies, then yes, indeed. But contrarily, Parliament thought that the parties, not only the accused, but also the prosecution, which also had the duty to ensure the fairness of the trial and of the trial and of course the courts that may have gone through some difficulties in the context of motions relating to evidence yes indeed the pre basic presumption applies to answer your question but without ignoring the discretionary mechanisms that allow us to get the, that balance but the mechanism will always be there common law will be somewhere, but what Justice Hamel is saying, I believe, is that we could read section 648 in light of section 645, saying that the objective is respected. We only remove the moment when the problem arises, when it comes to the prohibition ban, but it's the same principles that applies. It's only a change of the time, and in that case, we are not really 
causing any prejudice as you suggest in your uh, brief. There's no harm to the text, but the text is read in context in light of the objective. What do you think of this way of seeing the consistency of text and the idea that we're simply changing the time and not really changing the vocation of 648. I have difficulty with this interpretation because once again, there are indications showing that parliament was not unaware of mechanisms that applied. In 1972, the text mentioned radio broadcasting. In 1975, there's nothing in parliamentary debates that ties it to 648. I'm sorry, I'm speeding up. In 1994, there was a bill that was dropped, and you remember the context of discussions that took place. In 2005, parliament decided to amend 648, and it was aware that that debate took place. And it's aware, to my knowledge, I presume that Parliament was aware of the applicability of 645, but doesn't amend it. It only amends 648 to adjust the text that refers to newspaper pu publications and broadcasting to make sure that the restrictions are taken into account. In the same way for 640, when 641 is applied, when 18.1 is adopted, there is no link established with section 648. So I want to believe that parliament was aware of these issues because it scrutinizes this same chapter and it has done so over a 15 year period. So they realized that it's simpler to make the adjustments that the respondent uh, made, but it doesn't make these adjustments as expected. You know my answer. If those adjustments had been made, we will not be here probably. You are saying that there's nothing in the debate that links 648 to 645. But when you look at the wording in 645.5, it's almost automatic. It's the same words used in 648. When for a jury trial, the judge before jury selection and in the absence of a jury decide on issues which normally or necessarily will be the subject of a decision in the absence of a jury once the jury is selected. So we are talking about the same types of motions and debates that are the subject of 648 and which are clearly the object of publication. I understand that there may be no link in the debate themselves, but when you look at the wording of the two sections, it's the same type of motions. So why in one case is there a publication ban, whereas in the other one, as Justice Kazera said, is simply a change at the, of the moment. Um, as the judge Nide declared in Canadian Broadcasting, he said there was an automatic ban because of the combination of the two sections. Yes, indeed. My answer, you may find it redundant, and I'm sorry, but it's a sincere answer, and I feel convinced about it. This is because clearly Parliament did not want this different treatment. Clearly, the temporary, the time period that is critical doesn't have the same impact 
as when the jury is selected or when the jury doesn't exist. That's the best answer I could tell you. I could state it differently by saying that it is not absurd, it's not unreasonable for a discretionary regime to exist. It could take months, years, like in the Jordan case, I agree, but it's neither unreasonable nor absurd for a discretionary mechanism to apply before jury selection and for a statutory regime which is highly restrictive. Let's read 648. There is no nuance there. It's clear. It doesn't target information that is prejudicial to the accused. It refers to the entire phase of the trial. Well, let's not cry wolf. It is a prohibition, a publication ban, but the debate remains public. Beyond that, the publication ban is temporary. It's certainly an intrusion into Section 2B. And furthermore, you have colleagues in the media world who have criticized the constitutionality of Section 648 already. If we allow a model that is not satisfactory to everyone, but tries to recognize the balances. Let me add to what Justice Kazera has just said. Looking at the temporary aspect of the order, it's not permanent. The public will receive the information, but the public receives the information during the trial. The open court principle make sure that freedom of expression and information is protected. People have access to the trial and the journalists and the media have access to that. So we must bear that in mind when we talk about the impact of a publication ban. Justice Kazimita, Chief Justice, you are right. These are very valid points. However, when I listen to you, there are two main points that come to my mind. Firstly, the uh, 648 is more restrictive than the other sections, but allow the media to report some information. The second very important point for us, one moment, I'm here, I'm sorry. I would like to take you back to the bill and the debate. What weight should we give to those? On that question, I'm very trans I'll be very transparent. The case law applicable is mentioned in our brief, but sometimes it could be direct evidence of intention in some circumstances. The weight may vary depending on the context. In my opinion, authorities should I think we should, the, the fact that that amendment was dropped should be taken, considered in light of the comments that we made before, because um, I'm not too sure, but when we combine the two, in my opinion, this should be a direct proof of intention. 
on the second point, and if you allow me to come back to the question asked by Justice Kazira and the Chief Justice, the temporary nature. You know, Dagenet on page 119, we have other references in our brief. There's gig against uh, Tangi in the Quebec Court of Appeal, paragraph 115 says that the two-big two guarantee should be exercised temporarily. But contrary to 517, the adversarial proceedings have not really started. The accused has not prepared his defense and there is really no real debate. In the preliminary proceeding, it's a different stage. Very often, the accused are the ones making motions and they are in the front line when adversarial debates have started. For judicial guarantees, we talk about scrutinizing all of this. There's even talk of the immediacy of the guarantee. I'm talking of the, the contemporary judicial action. To answer your question, the fact that something is postponed, is this the absence of prejudice? No. The fact that if pertinent information is reported, even if it's limited, when information that is not prejudicial being reported, it should be protected. We do know that justice delayed is justice denied. If you would allow me to be even more funny, address stress, newspaper wraps okay. on tomorrow's fish. Let's come back to the principle, Mr. Nadal, because you are talking to the converted. What do you mean by contemporary? You are dealing with a trial, for example, that goes on for months, where motions have been moved before jury selection, before the trial starts. And this takes months between the time when the evidence has been adduced and the time when it's reported by the media. What do you mean by contemporary? Certainly, based on your recent ruling in Bro, April 2023, the court interpreted the word immediately as meaning immediately. Well, that was a very different context. Well, when we are pleading, we could try whatever we will very well. I respectfully submit that for us, the notion of contemporary varies, but as my colleagues are claiming, any information that is delayed, well, our publication is delayed, is publication denied. I think it's important to state that. And that is why the discretionary mechanism offers all the protections we need because it limits the information that may be prejudicial and share information that is not prejudicial. So in an imperfect world, sometimes there are almost perfect situations by discarding the idea of conflict as Dagenet taught us. Now out of experience, I can say that 
we are very far from where we were with the conflictual model. And we are able to get the balance required by the parliament. There are things, there are risk zones we don't find when we are dealing with a jury that doesn't yet exist. Your colleague would say that the balance established by the parliament, even before thinking of a balance established by a judge with all the cost and so on that it represents, for you, the costs are borne by the media. For the accused, it's less obvious. But let me ask you something. What do you think of the proposal that is median made by your colleague when he takes an interpretation of 648 that allows before decision would allows to take decisions before jury selection that is some motions are not concerned by that standard mentioned in Dajanay Mentok, but there's an intermediary position that respects at least freedom of the press and the fairness of the trial. What do you think of this middle ground? If you give me some 30 seconds to make a preliminary comment, you talked about cost when you started your comment. I will humbly say that the issue of cost is not only a question for the media. Clearly, there are issues, issues of public interest, cost and resources as well. The media has to make choices for the accused. Clearly, there are costs as well, I agree. But as stated before, the prosecution also move such motions. I would like to insist on that because it's important. It requires collaboration. I've never seen a trial derail over the past 15 years in a criminal case because the media made long motions. In the contrary, those motions are always regrouped and dealt with together and time is set for the media. Ways are sought to bring together the files when the jury is absent and everything works out well. Back to your question, the middle ground proposed, which may not be in an appropriate balance given the context. I always have difficulty with this interpretation because somehow it has to do with the personal knowledge of each judge. What is, what motion would be heard before a jury? What motion would ordinarily be heard by jury? What about charter type motions? Maybe sometimes before, I read a motion from my colleague. I still have difficulty with the application that is alleged, which I think may be mechanical. What about application of 648 afterwards, after jury selection? Should we interpret it in the same way? 
is there a total publication ban after jury selection or a partial publication ban when applied before jury selection? I have great difficulty understanding why a provision should be applied differently in one circumstance compared to another circumstance. I do not necessarily agree with the comment that those motions are brought together because from my experience it's not necessarily the case. It usually depends on the case. If it's a mother case and from what I know with my former colleagues these are things that go on for months and months and evidence my changes. But I would like to come back to what Chief Justice, the Chief Justice said about Jordan. Every time the trial judge must ask for a Dajemen talk Sherman type motion and then there are long deadlines. Don't you agree with me? My answer, my clear answer is no. I understand that it's not systematic for motions to be regrouped and I'm not claiming the contrary. However, I can only insist on the efficiency and collaboration that I've seen in my files over the past 15 years. Let's look at Alberta and it's over the past two and a half decades they apply 648 only after jury selection. I have no evidence or indication leading me to believe that the system is dysfunctional. It hasn't been alleged by the respondent either. My answer, my response is the fact that now there are preliminary motions subject to Dachanem Mentor. Maybe, is this a sign that there's a dysfunction that has to do with deadlines. I can't assert the contrary. Out of experience, I believe in the capacity of the media and collaboration to have ensure that the process is respected. You also know that the media is sensitive to the realities of the accused, to the, sen to the realities. It's not all notices that are sent that require intervention. Amongst the tens of notices that are sent, there are no interventions on all the files and more will not be done because now there will be more notices. I do not concede that there will be systematic delays caused by the Dagenet mechanism for preliminary proceedings. The risk of contamination, if I understood correctly, is that it's less before the jury is selected. What do you make of a publication ban covering uh, a, preliminary, uh, a preliminary hearing? The accused can get access to that uh, as of right. Why do you think that exists? Well, because it's a preliminary uh, stage. The defense is not engaged yet. The accused is not engaged yet. So the accused is entitled to all the prosecution's evidence, but it's not at the defense stage. 
So there could be overwhelming evidence that the accused cannot even meet or answer. So once again, I see a significant difference between a preliminary inquiry where the information can be pre protected if it's crucial under Dajne Mentak, whereas the uh, non-prejudicial evidence, which could not harm the accused, should be available. Well, what about on a bail hearing or a show cause? There's evidence that would normally not be admissible at trial. So the idea is that that evidence that could be relevant to bail should never be uh, considered by a potential jury, a non-existing, not yet existing jury, as you put it. Well, there are two things that come to mind, Chief Justice, and I don't want to concede that there are huge practical consequences, but in the case law, Thibault, Gingras, and a number of other authorities. There have been cases where the courts have recognized that some documents in among the search warrants, which were would be available under Dajne Mentak, under the discretion, but there might be a co-accused or a, another case. It shouldn't be automatic. You should have to go through Dajne Mentak. That information should not systematically be deemed confidential. Uh, something that came up in the a preliminary inquiry should not automatically be considered confidential. So yes, there are sometimes ambiguities or overlaps among cases, but it's up to Parliament to settle those issues, not the courts. The second point to Chief Justice is that I see a major difference between 517 and 648. And I'm sorry if I've said this before, but the text is different. The wording is different. Parliament clearly wanted the effects of 539 and 517. And it was a much more limited publication ban in those cases in 517 and 530. Much more limited than 648. When you look at the text of 648, the wording, the... Respondents are trying to convince you to ignore about a dozen words in that provision. And they're doing an injustice to the wording by crossing out the first line of the provision. And in right, in paragraphs 28 to 31, which we agree with, the exercise you're being asked to engage in is inconsistent with the role of interpreters. So the context is important and the wording too. But if there's nothing uh, undesirable or unclear or you simply cannot do what my friends are asking you to do. This is not about filling gaps. This is about the actual drafting, the actual wording. Explain what the gaps are. Where's the gap in your friend's argument? Because, or the defect in your friend's argument. What's wrong with what they're saying? I find no such defect. 
you're saying that the ambiguity does not stem from the contacts. If that's your position, well, is that what you're saying? Or are you saying that the Crown is urging an interpretation that's based on practice rather than the provision itself, the wording and the context and so on? Uh, so they're urging a practical interpretation. Well, where's the error in principle? Other than saying that this uh, does an injustice to the text that, but since Rizzo, this court has been trying to push aside that type of approach. Well, I understand, but we're creating connections. We're trying to convince the court that my friends are trying to convince the court to look at other provisions that are not connected to the provision in question. Uh, it's a huge leap to go from 517 and 539, which have to do with um, case management, and 648, uh, which is they're basically drawing connections between sections of the criminal code that are simply unrelated. And in our view, what the respondents are trying to, the, the inconsistency that they're trying to address, in our, in our, it's our position that that's not possible to go about it that way. I could give you a lengthier response, but my time is running out. And I want to leave a little bit of time, or at least my, my, my colleague, his fair share of the time. Do you have any other questions before I wrap up? Well, your solution would be a Dajne Mentak motion, I guess. Who's going to apply for a discretionary publication ban here? The accused, the crown, the trial judge? Who's it up to? Who has the onus? Is that not going to compromise the fairness and the effectiveness of the trial? To answer your question, Justice, I don't think so. Who's it up to? Well, basically, in principle, it's up to the party that wants the information kept confidential. I understand the perception that there would be some inconvenience involved in having to move such a motion, but it's it's a possibility nonetheless. The court has to see to it that to be is protected. So I believe the court itself could, uh, could apply the test. The court itself could raise the issue. Shouldn't we be thinking about this or that, about confidentiality or, uh, or openness? Uh, so there are logistical issues of course, the trial could be lengthened by this type of motion, but there's no indication that in Alberta that the system is dysfunctional. And I would remind you of uh, in, the, in my friend's factum, this, these situations uh, are a very small part of what the courts have to deal with but the discretion available is perfectly suited to dealing with the issue at bar. In conclusion, I would simply submit that Bro and Orphan Wells urge an interpretive approach that is applicable in this case, and I would submit 
that the living tree theory should not apply when it comes to the statutory construction of provisions of the criminal code, especially, I might add, when such an interpretation would broaden the scope of the provision and lead to a higher probability of a finding of a criminal offense. Well, I have one last question. How will your interpretation affect the self-represented? Because there's a matter of uh, knowledge and experience. So how's a self-represented person going to navigate these waters? Well, I think the usual tools will apply. A trial judge can help out a self-represented accused and that could make up, for, and I think the Crown too could, because the Crown has a duty to ensure that the 11D guarantee uh, is protected in the case of a self-represented person. So I believe that the Court and the Crown could certainly address those issues of a self-represented accused. Merci. Thank you. Good morning, Justices. An important thing to keep in mind is that Section 648 of the Criminal Code creates an offence. There could be a case where la presse could be accused of violating 648. That's not the situation here, luckily. This issue was argued before there were any charges. But it could happen. There could be charges under 648 because 648 creates an offense such that if someone did publish or broadcast information, they themselves could be convicted of uh, a, a violation. And that brings us to a significant situation because the principles of interpretation are uh, are affected by that. An individual needs to know that they're doing something that could lead to a criminal accusation. So, but there could be a situation after a jury is, is constituted, a person understands that there's a, a window, a time frame that applies after the jury is selected. It's important for the public to know what the rule is. Council, what's your opinion of the decision of Fanato, paragraph 42? What do you have to say 
of that interpretation of section 648. 648.1, no, but 648.2 creates the criminal offense. So the criminal offense under sub 2 is to violate six, uh, 648.1. So when you read it, it's clear. Sub 2 says failure to comply with sub 1 a person can be found guilty of, of a summary conviction offense. So it's sub two that creates an offense of violating sub one. And 517 and 539 are uh, only uh, when an application is made. So an accused who's self-represented, who's self-represented needs to know these things. And the Crown can apply under those provisions, but for 517 and 539 under Dajne Mentak, it's only on application. It's discretionary. So no order is made by a judge in those cases. So, but in 648, we're talking about an automatic ban. Uh, and I think that uh, a significant case in this case is DLW. In DLW, there's an expansion of criminal liability. So, and the, my friends recognize this, it's a, it's a broadening of criminal liability. And, and that's what Parliament wanted. Would you agree that according to the principle you're saying that it wouldn't, would you agree that it doesn't apply after the jury has been selected? Because the yeah. opposition is based on the existence of uh, an ambiguity under a purposive interpretation. Well, if you look at DLW, there are two principles. The principle, the first principle, according to which the legislative provision has to be clear. And in order to broaden criminal liability, Parliament would have to do that clearly because there's the rule of law and there has to be the certainty of law. So Parliament has to set, establish an offense clearly. So, a related principle is that before an individual can be deprived of their liberty, the law has to be clear. So, in DLW, there are two principles. One, that in order to infer a broadening of criminal liability, Parliament has to do that clearly. It can't be just an amendment to 645 that somehow broadens criminal liability. And secondly, if there is any ambiguity, the interpretation has to go in the favor of the accused. And in this case, it would be the individual who violates 648. That would be the individual that needs to know that that's what they're doing. So the, the, those are the principles that should guide. Do you think there's an ambiguity here? No, because if you read the, the provision, it's crystal clear. And the context, also we have to 
keep that into take that into account. So 647 and 648. So that's the immediate context. So 647 says that once the jury sep separates, so if you look at the context, the interpretation that we are arguing is consistent with the, well, that's a very limited idea of the context. And coming back to what Justice Jamal said, wasn't Justice Cromwell, Cromwell thinking about the creation of new offenses, obviously uh, uh, by Parliament, not by the judge. So here, the interpretation of 648, the idea of simply moving the, the time at which, moving up the time at which the section applies, as opposed to creating a new uh, offense out of thin air. Isn't that uh, what Justice Cromwell was talking about? Well, DLW is interesting because it, it wasn't about creating a new offense. It was an interpretation of bestiality, a broader interpretation of bestiality and whether or not penetration was required. So it's, it's about interpreting a provision more broadly in a, such a way as to redefine the offense of bestiality. So in this case, there wasn't a specific goal to broaden the offense. But if it's not done in a sp with a specific purpose, if criminal liability is broadened by expanding the time frame or the window of time, well, it may not be a new offense, but it is certainly a broadening of the scope of the offense. And I would add when you look at the principles in Bro, which is a recent decision, I think it's quite consistent with our position and the principle of interpretation that uh, is highlighted in Bro at paragraph 27 of Bro, where it says that the courts should be careful not to create any uncertainty because an individual needs to know whether an offense is criminal before committing it. And 648 could apply to the media, but we live in times where it's not just about media. An individual can, can publish information on social media. They might have seen, uh, attended a voir dire, there was no publication order under Dagenet Mentuck, and I could, I could put out a tweet as an ordinary citizen. And simply by tweeting, that individual could be convicted by summary conviction, could, could be found guilty. Guilt by summary conviction. It's not a criminal act, but an offense which could take somebody to prison. So the result is uh, serious. So it's like contempt of court. What did you say? That could be like contempt, contempt of court at the same time. It's not the equivalent to contempt of court because there's no order. And that's why we must establish the difference. The citizen the citizen is aware of the order. And when there's an order, the situation is clear. When there's no order, we rely only on the law. 
and the law therefore has to be very clear and that is what arises from the bro decision 648 is an order no it's not an order nowhere in 648 do we see an order required maybe in practice during the jury trial i understand that the judge could tell members of the public present that we are dealing with the situation well the judge will always issue an order yes he does that but 648 applies even without an order it applies automatically i think that we must clarify that fact and that is why it distinguishes 648 from 519 and 539 briefly let me make some comments on foreign law i'm not trying to agree with the respondent his majesty the king that we want to use foreign law to interpret our law but we are mentioning it in our brief simply to say that in other similar jurisdictions for example in the uk our system draws from the system in the uk but their position is different from the position of the respondent there's a discretionary system and i do not believe that the uk system is inconsistent because there's the possibility of discretion when it comes to questioning a publication ban before jury selection so you are saying that 648 is not an order but when i look at the two decisions that were made by justice david there are orders at the end of each decision in this specific case i agree with you but in reality 648 applies even without an order so if you issue an if you come up with a decision to broaden the scope of 648 to apply it even before jury selection it creates a situation where a citizen could find themselves unable to defend themselves because they may have commit, committed an offense without even realizing no one is supposed to you know ignorance of the law is no excuse i would conclude by saying that we are dealing with an interpretation of separation of powers so the court will not necessarily intervene in matters that are the responsibility of the parliament but it's also a debate debate on freedom of expression and the public should know what is happening in the court in real time and also it's something to be considered in this case thank you the court will take the morning break 15 minutes La Cour, the court. Please be seated. Mr. Abram.
Madame Clébert. You have the floor. Chief Justice, Justices, good morning. You heard submissions from our learned friends from the press who insisted on a very literal interpretation of the provision. The interpretation they are giving you in our position is silent on the real impact when it comes to practicing criminal courts in the court daily and doesn't sufficiently consider the need to hold fair trials for all parties involved, be it the accused or the society. However, considering judicial practice and delays, I think it's an interpretation exercise that we must do according to the law. There's that problem to address as well. Yes, Chief Justice, of course. But in the plan I'll be presenting to you, this question of interpretation is explained and I'll try to explain in my submission this morning that the interpretation we propose ensures fairness for all parties. The interpretation we are proposing, secondly, ensures effective administration of justice. And the third thing I would like to address is the fact that the interpretation we propose is one that ensures consistency for all regimes that were established by parliament to ensure fairness. I we will be sharing our time. It will be shared between His Majesty the King for 40 minutes and Mr. Silva will be submitting for about 20 minutes. And the representation time by the prosecution his Majesty the King will also be subdivided between myself and Mr. Abraham. Mr. Abraham will be dealing with a specific issue that concerns our request for suspension where this court were to approve the request by the appellant. And that's what Mr. Abraham will be covering at the end. As I indicated before, the interpretation we are proposing, which is that Section 648 applies before jury selection for matters which ordinarily would have been heard in the absence of the jury. And this relies on three main points to address the first question. The fact that our interpretation ensures fairness of the trial for all the parties. How? I'll give you three main arguments to support our position. The first argument, the publication ban, temporary publication ban in 648 allows the different parties to focus on the main issue, which is the guilt or innocence of the person concerned. Why do I raise this issue? This court has clearly indicated in the Toronto Stars Newspapers Limited against Canada in paragraph 22 and 48 that fairness in trials 
or rather trial fairness should be considered broadly and we must make sure that the resources are not wasted and it's in that light that the prosecution feels that the publication ban, the temporary publication ban, allows the accused and the prosecution not to waste resources and ensures uh, fairness of the trial. Furthermore, the temporary publication ban favors fairness because promotes advocates because when each motion is moved, the parties don't have to ask whether subsidiary issues are eligible. Is it prejudicial to the accused? Do we need to verify each element to find out whether a motion should be moved? Conversely, looking at the proposal in your brief, your proposal is that it's not is that there's not, we don't have a total publication ban, only procedures that are normally subject to publication before a jury. So a decision has to be made. There is discretion to be exercised. You talked about Dajana Mentok and you said there was discretion. It's the same problem. According to your own scenario, one of my problems is to find out where to draw the line. The ultimate proposal, if 648 uh, exists without the need for any other exercise before or after, that's one proposal. The other one is that 648 exists only after jury selection and there, there's no ambiguity. But the third, which I believe is yours, correct me if I did not understand you well, what you wrote down is that 648 could also apply after jury selection, but not under all circumstances. So how do we navigate through this process? Yes, indeed, Chief Justice, if you would allow me. The proposal made by the prosecution is that 648 applies after jury selection, but only for matters that would probably have been heard. So to be consistent with the vocabulary used in 645, paragraph 5. What this means is that in practice, most motions will be covered by the publication ban. All motions that have to do with eligibility of evidence, the charter, and all motions that may be procedural but are helpful for understanding the case will be covered. So would so motions that would ordinarily be heard before jury selection, for example, I the retrench for cause or want to amend an indictment. I do agree that these are very restrictive examples because most motions that are dealt with during preliminary proceedings or whether it be during case management 
uh, motions that have to do with admissibility. But there's still a gray zone. Yes, indeed. And this gray zone, will it not cause many disputes if the mental Dagenet scenario is applied? I do not believe so. Because over time, it will be, be clear which motions are not covered if 645 is applied. For all issues that may arise, parties will defer to the judge. The situation will be presented to the case management judge. So if there is any ambiguity or if the parties have any questions, they could submit them immediately to the case management judge. Because in practice, most motions are announced in advance and there's a timeline provided for that. Therefore, it is very easy from the very start to identify motions which, according to the interpretation we are proposing, are logically and ordinarily covered by 645. And those that may be problematic on which parties may have questions, for those ones, they may be submitted to the judge and then he, he or she would determine whether those motions bearing in mind preliminary presentations or subsidiary issues would be covered by 645 or not and if not covered by 645 then there is a possibility for other motions to be moved according to Dajemek Mentok. Let's take a concrete example. A motion to change venue. What do we do in that situation? Would that motion be covered by the interpretation you are giving us of 648 or is there a gray zone that, I, that the Chief Justice has said, is it the case management judge that will decide? And if so, on the basis of what? Whether or not there's a publication ban? What criteria will be used? That's the concern we have. It's all nice and good to say, yes, we will change the time before trial starts as was understood in 1992. Let's take that example. What do we do? Well, on a motion to change venues, it could fall into a number of categories. It could be heard before, but not necessarily before the jury is selected. It could be after, too. So when a motion could fall at various times, it should fall under 648. It's only in a case when where a motion could virtually never be heard before the jury is selected, then that's when the discretionary test would apply. For example, if uh, something could be heard after the jury is selected, then it should automatically fall under 648. Well, in your factum, you proposed a test in paragraph 8 and paragraph 4 and 12. Matters that would normally, ordinarily, or necessarily 
be the subject of a decision in the absence of the jury should uh, should be covered. So is that precise enough to guide us and the media, for example, and they have a constitutional right or basis for wanting to publish information. So is that, an, is that sufficient? To answer your question, Justice, it's our position that our argument is the same, it's consistent. What we're saying is that the publication ban would only apply to things that would ordinarily or necessarily be dealt with in the absence of the jury. So whether or not the jury's been selected is not the issue. It's whether or not these issues would ordinarily or necessarily be dealt with in the absence of the jury. So given that there is a possibility that if it's possible that the motion could have been dealt with after the jury was selected, then it, then 648 should apply regardless of whether the motion is argued before or after the jury is selected. Does that answer your question? Okay. So I was still on my first argument about the fairness issue that the purpose of 648 is to guarantee fairness for all parties and uh, basically allowing the issue to focus on guilt or innocence. So the question really comes up for accused that are unrepresented and who have limited financial means because these motions, for example, for a publication ban or a, a discretionary ban under Dagenet Mentak, they're temporary, but there's an issue of timing because you have to identify potentially prejudicial evidence. All this has to go before a judge. It's all preparatory in nation and it comes at a cost. And for a self-represented accused, they're at a disadvantage. An accused who's not represented by legal aid or an accused who doesn't have great financial means, in other words, most people with an average income, the idea of paying a lawyer, it's very expensive. And if there are multiple motions to be heard that are not s central to the issue of guilt or, in or innocence, these are, these are very expensive. Counsel, I'm really not sure where these arguments fit in to the issue of interpreting uh, provision. They may be very valid concerns, but it doesn't seem to me that what you're saying has anything to do with principles of statutory con construction. These 
are procedural, practical considerations that you're raising about the balance of power and so on. But where does this all fit into our role? Our role is limited. Our role is to interpret 648 in your factum. I saw that you were sticking to the modern method, context and purpose and so on. Where does all this fit in? As a matter of fact, to answer your question, Justice, if we apply modern principles of interpretation and we look at the purpose of Section 648, the purpose is to promote fairness by ensuring that the jurors are not contaminated and that they will come to a finding based on the evidence that is legally adduced in court. Now, I was making some more practical points, and the reason for that is that in order to promote fairness in the broader sense, that's why I was trying to demonstrate that uh, our approach would help avoid multiple motions of a Dajne Mentak type, and uh, this would enable us to better serve the purpose of 648. Well, my concern is that if uh, practical considerations can be taken into account in interpreting statutes, well, if you say Dajne Mentak takes too long, there's no problems in Alberta. If we're to take things like that into account, then judges will be doing some interpretative freelancing or freestyle interpretation. But the modern exercise is for judges to focus on the issues. And if you look at Bebawi, where the court did not want to depart from the text. Uh, in the court's defense, they didn't want to go astray and, or lose sight of their role as interpreters of the statute. What you're inviting us to do is embark on an interpretative approach that uh, goes further afield, if you will. What's your position exactly? Well, when it comes to the approach that we're recommending, our recommendation is about consistency, to pay heed to the context of all the different types of proceedings and motions that may need to be heard, for example, with 517, 539, 555.1, as well as 648. Because the goal is a sound administration of justice, and the underlying goal is always to ensure procedural fairness and to make sure that inadmissible evidence never reaches the ears of the jurors, so that to ensure that the trial 
is fair. So are you talking about the context of the enactment of 648 or the context of the enactment of all these other provisions that you've mentioned? Because I, it was my understanding that what our role was, was to interpret section 648 and uh, context, purpose, and, uh, and, and text. But are you talking about the context, text, and uh, for, for, for all these other provisions as well? Well, an interpretation is not static. It has to evolve over time along with other provisions. So when 648 was enacted, trials only began after the jury had been selected. They couldn't begin before. So logically, there were no motions heard beforehand. So obviously, 648 only applied after the jury had been selected. But then with 555.1, uh, there was a change. Okay, so a change in the timing of the hearing of all those motions. Are you arguing that there's also a change in the timing of the start of the trial? Yes, I would say so. Because the trial is not just limited to the hearing of the evidence uh, going to the question of guilt or innocence. It also, there, there are also parts of the trial that have to do with whether or not evidence is admissible. That's part of the trial. Okay, so you're saying that the 648, uh, the purpose remains the same. Yes, the purpose remains the same, and that is to ensure a fair trial and to ensure that the jury is not contaminated by inadmissible evidence. So the fundamental goal has not changed with our interpretation, and it doesn't change with 645.5 and 555.1. And everything that has to do with case management. So it's not a matter of a living tree here. It's simply the application of 648.5 and basically a change in practice. It's not a change in purpose. It's simply uh, a, a, the purpose remains the same. So a voir dire after the jury is selected, should have the same protection as a voir dire before the jury is selected. So there's no change in purpose. That's why you're saying there's no change. The purpose is the same. Exactly. That is our position, Chief Justice. If you don't mind. I had moved on to my second argument which is that our interpretation promotes fairness. I'll give you a concrete example. A discretionary publication ban under Dajne Mentak is hard, it's hard to get because there are a number of steps that need to be followed. And I think you raised this yourselves 
when you have a self-represented accused, it's very difficult to apply for such a discretionary ban. And I'm, this is, goes to the heart of fairness. So there's a significant risk in connection with those motions. For example, if there was a Corbett motion, well, the accused's criminal record could come out and that would be extremely prejudicial and could subsequently be ruled inadmissible. So if the parties, whether the Crown or the accused, is unable to meet their burden under the three criteria of a Dajne Mentak uh, test, there is a risk that some of that information could be made public some of that very prejudicial information to the accused. And I wanted to draw your attention to that possibility. Moving on to my last argument now. Well, it's a bit moot too, because the Dajna Mentak test has to do with the possibility that evidence could be made public but of voir dire, for example, if uh, the accused had admitted something to the police, if there was a confession, of voir dire about that, I don't see how Dajna Mintak would be useful because clearly there would have to be evidence going to the voluntariness of the confession. So it's not the same thing. And that's why, whether it's done before or after the jury selected, it really doesn't change things. I'm not really sure I understood what you were saying, Chief Justice. What you're saying is that information would be covered one way or the other because it's prejudicial. Yes. Well, then, of course, I agree with you. The third point I wanted to make going to the fairness of the proceedings is that the temporary application of 648 allows the public to maintain confidence in the proceedings is that any there would still be a guarantee that uh, no only legal legally adduced evidence would be made available and according to this court, uh, intense publication could affect the minds of the jurors. And so that's a risk that we need to be aware of. Jurors may have trouble distinguishing between the source of the information uh, before making their decision. So, whether or not information is made public, a temporary publication ban under 648 provides a guarantee to society, to the public, that no inadmissible evidence will contaminate jurors. Also, we need to keep in mind that the impact of publication 
could vary depending on whether you're in a major urban center or a smaller town. In a major urban center, information is constant, round the clock. There's lots of information. One headline bumps another very quickly. So the effect could be lessened. But if you're in a smaller town, there's much less news coverage and any news, especially involving a serious crime, is more likely to be something that people pay attention to. It's going to affect people more because it will be less drowned out by other news in the news, constant news cycle. And if you don't mind, I'd like to turn now to the second question, which is why does our position best promote a sound administration of justice? And in order to make that point, I will rely on four arguments. My first argument has to do with the fact that a temporary publication ban under 648 avoids many practical issues that would otherwise be unavoidable under Dajne Mentak. First of all, each party needs to be able to identify the prejudicial, prejudicial information, has to advise the media. It takes time and cost so all of these are the downsides of a Dajne Mentak approach. It could take half a day or a day to hear a motion. And if there are multiple motions, there could be multiple delays. And all that runs counter to the sound administration of justice. And 645.5, and all the case management decisions under 555-1. And then of course, there's the Jordan decision that encourages parties to manage judicial resources better so that the whole criminal justice system can move forward. No one questions what you're saying, counsel. But when I look at what Parliament did with the criminal code, there are public publication bans possible for preliminary inquiries, for show cause, for voir dire that occur after the jury has been selected. And Parliament didn't specifically say that they had the same concern about voir dires that occur before the jury is selected. So when we're called upon to interpret 648, we're not interpreting 645, we're interpreting 648. How, when, when interpreting this, how are we supposed to get to where you're at? I'm not saying we won't, I just wanna know how we get there because you're talking about a sound administration of justice, but how using 
a modern interpretation technique, how are we supposed to arrive at what at the approach you're recommending? Well, to answer your question, I think one of the important points that you could go by is the principle of consistency. Consistency of the provisions and of the whole scheme, the whole statutory scheme in question. And that's why I'm talking about 645.5 because as I said earlier, the wording is the same. There's a clear and direct connection between 645.5 and 648.1. So given that clear connection, it appears to us that it's rather obvious. Could like to supplement my I'll take you even further. In paragraph, your paragraph 18, after quoting that principle, Professor Cote, and so on, you said that this is particularly important when we have to interpret a code. Being a civil law expert, I understand the idea, but this may not be a code, at least in the real sense of the word. We're talking about what a code is. This linguistic discipline is absent in the criminal code. Sometimes we talked about proceedings. The language is not the same. Amendments made to the code are sometimes done in a one-off way and sometimes it's not clear what the real objective is. Now the question that was asked by Justice Cote is very relevant. We have a text. Think of what Justice Konoye says in Bebawi. There's a clear text. I know that the court said that in 1919, we shouldn't distort the real meaning of words. And you are saying that it's because of consistency that you are doing this. Could you be more specific? To what extent will consistency allow us to do this here? Faced with a text which, according to your learned friends, is clear on the face of it. Mr. Justice, I will say that the fact that a text appears clear doesn't mean that there may be no ambiguity when it's being applied. Sometimes we need to interpret a text that appears clear to avoid any inconsistencies. And that is what we have in the Alex decision as well as in the Rizzo decision, paragraph 27. Let me also refer you to Cote Divina, page 340, paragraph 176. It may be necessary to interpret a provision that is clear or appears clear to avoid inconsistent situations or things that are illogical. But you are talking we are being the argument made is that we are not being told to interpret 
but to rewrite the text. Ignore the first words of section 648. Or should new words been, have been added to 645 to incorporate subsection 648? So are we interpreting or not? It's just a question I'm asking. Or are we rewriting one of the provisions of that section? Our position is that you are interpreting and not rewriting the text. The interpretation we are proposing is not to remove words, but simply to make an existing provision consistent with other provisions before it that were enacted by parliament. And that is why it's not about bringing out or rewriting the text, but rather making it consistent with other sections of the code. I see my time is running out. Very quickly, I'll also like to address the fact that during adoption of 645.5, the objective was proper administration of justice. 645 could not produce the contrary effect by imposing the Dagenet Mentor motions on all motions that were adopted before jury selection. I would like to draw your attention to the fact that 517 and 539 had a significant impact on the idea of the fairness of trials. And for those sections, there was a publication ban that covered a longer period than the publication ban pursuant to 648. One last question from the podium. Uh, that's the question I referred to a while ago. The famous gr gray zone. Should it be clearly stated, should we clearly state circumstances of motions that would be excluded from the publication ban or should we leave it open? I think that you can draw from motions in another section. There's a series of motions that are indicated. I think it's FG 551. Section 551 FG, let me check please. I'm sorry, it's 551.1 and FG. There you have a list of motions that are dealt with by the case management judge. That could be a good starting point for any possible appellation if the judge, if the court wants to specifically address motions that are normally heard before jury selection. Thank you for your attention. I'll give the floor to my colleague, Mr. Abran. Justice, justices, good morning. I'll take a few minutes because I would like to give the floor to my other colleague. I would like to come back to some issues that were raised. According to us, the text of 648 
is once permission to separate is given to jurors, no information concerning a phase of a trial in the absence of the jury could be published. So we should take the meaning given by the press, limiting the words phase of the trial to the period before jury select, following jury selection. And that's why we are asking you to go see 645.5, which provides you with the link to interpret to consider only a phase that takes place in the absence of the jury. At that point, we could talk about voidies, which in current practice Felix. all take place before jury selection. The intention of the lawmaker, even if the provision is not written the way we would have loved, is, it is clear to ensure fairness of 648 and then the 645.5 administration of justice. Justice Kazira, you talked about the fact that we are not dealing with the civil law here and the code is similar, but these are sections that are intricately linked. We are talking about a phase of a trial which according to 648, the lawmaker with all we know about trials now at the time of interpreting 645.5 could not limit it to the period after jury selection. And that is how we can interpret the provisions together and get to a regime that is consistent. Otherwise, and I'll end there, I don't want to take Mr. Savoy's time, otherwise there will be inconsistency if we adopt 645.5 seeking proper administration of justice. The lawmaker would have removed the protection provided by 648 for most motions triggering the obligation to come up with discretionary motions every time and this takes time and resources and this may prejudice the sound administration of justice so that could not have been the legislator's uh, intention i understand well is the text perfect no it will not be before you if that text were perfect but uh, the two provisions taken together, do they allow us to discover the lawmaker's intention? That is what we're submitting to you. And for the rest, I'll give the floor to my learned friend. Chief Justice, Justices, good morning. I would like to come back to a point. A respondent's represent, representative said there was ambiguity in 648 in our brief. It is indicated in a brief, but what we said further on is that when that ambiguity is interpreted with modern interpretation, in light of modern interpretation, there's no ambiguity. So a strict interpretation of criminal provisions should apply only where there is ambiguity. What we're seeing is that when we engage in modern interpretation, there's no ambiguity. Could you please name the ambiguity? I have the text before me. Are you talking about 648? Yes. 
the ambiguity created after the entry into force of 645-5 and part, a part of the criminal code. So the ambiguity is elsewhere. When we read 645-5 together with 648 as it was drafted at the time when that new provision was adopted. Yes, when 648 entered into force, what we're saying is that now there are two phases of the trial. I understand because that's the argument you have presented in the brief. I understand you very well. But for those of us who are concerned with the integrity of our principles for interpreting laws, we are trying to understand what exactly you are asking to do when using the modern approach. I think you are asking for too much. That's the concern we have, of course. We're talking about 648 today, but tomorrow is going to be another provision from the tax law. And it's the same method. That's the concern we have. So if I understand you well, what you're saying is that the ambiguity that triggers the problem of interpretation that takes us away from what was previously seen as something clear comes from elsewhere. Is that what you're saying? And if so, where exactly is the problem? Is it the principle of consistency? Is it the purpose? Because we were not born with all this. That's the concern, Justice Kazira. It's about everything. If you take the appellant's position, we are saying that the appellant's position, first of all, calls on you to change the objective of the provision, which is to protect the integrity of the trial and the impartiality of the jury. The appellant is asking you is to consider the fact that only a jury that is empaneled should be considered. That's not the purpose of 648. 48, according to our position, and with a modern interpretation taking into account not only the initial purpose of the provision, which has not changed, the entry into force of 645.5 and part 18, um, there is internal consistency, and I would like to come back to that. For us, a trial is in two phases. A trial starts when motions are heard. What I understand from what you're saying is that are we distorting the meaning of the first part of 648? In some situations, if without excluding the first part of 648, but somewhat putting it aside, if we have to do it, it may create inconsistencies. But using a modern interpretation, the answer is yes. Or are you asking us to add to 645.5? Let me change, rephrase my question. The publication ban provided for in 648, it's clear because we're trying to wonder whether there's an ambiguity there or not. Should it be, should the ambiguity that exists be imported into 645.5? Because there we are dealing with a phase of the trial in the absence of the jury that is also covered by section 648. So you are saying that there's also a publication ban that applies when motions are being heard before jury selection and which normally or necessarily should have been heard in the absence of the jury. The publication ban applies at a phase of the trial that is heard in the absence of the jury. 
the secondary objective is that the publication ban applies at the face of a trial in the absence of the jury. So if we change that face of the trial, which is heard in the absence of the jury, we place it before constitution. So you are saying that either the jury is absent because it's not yet selected or because after selection, they are asked to leave the room for the judge to hear the, the motion because it doesn't make a difference. Well, at 641 and 642, 43, the lawmaker changed the word trial and used a procedural phase. So the jury is there at the beginning. So if the lawmaker wanted to modify 648, the term trial is maintained. The term trial could have been repeated in 645 and in part 18 of the criminal code. Now, is it unfair to say that 648, yes, is ambiguous because the meaning to give to a phase of a trial seems to contradict the beginning of the sentence. And this meaning to give to this phase of the trial comes from the meaning that derives from 645. And here we are no longer sure what 648 means. Am I exaggerating? Because once again, we have case law from the court which requires that when the clear meaning of a provision is observed, no principle for interpreting the law could move it, which means that you should go along with the clear meaning. So I just want you to clarify your thought process to help us draft the decision that will follow. I'm thinking where, of where Judge Justice Lamer said in his conclusions. Well, I think it was during the same session when it came to conservative sentences. If we must ignore the meaning of the term, Adopting a modern interpretation, that should that approach should be adopted. I think it's important that I repeat part 18 of the criminal code. When it's taken as a whole, taking into account 645 and 648, 651.3 and G, talking about motions that the judge could rule on. When we read paragraph two, what is said is that the judge do, does it during the hearing. When we read paragraph three, it's during the trial. So it's clear for us that the trial is in two phases. And the, once the motions have been ruled upon, the trial has started. And if the trial has started, then we refer to 648. All phases of the trial in the absence of the jury when we interpret the provisions as a whole, we understand that there are two phases of the trial, one before substantive evidence and one after. And when the case management judge hears in motion, the trial starts and 648 applies. So in our opinion, 
this interpretation has the advantage of being clear and stable and is easily understood. Uh, let me also refer to the criminal nature of 648. Once the trial starts, 648 applies. The condition we have in 648 is that permission to separate should have been given to the jurors. After being selected, permission should have been given for them to separate. Yes, uh, with all due respect, Justice Cote, I don't think that's a condition for 648 to apply because when 648 was enacted, the trial only began with the swearing in of the jury. So when a trial is separated into two phases for the purposes of internal consistency, I would agree with uh, my colleagues. We're not uh, striking those terms out. We're simply being internally consistent. And I'd like to come back to the discussion with, with counsel for His Majesty the King, the discussion of practical consequences. And if we were to take the appellant's approach to 648, the Chief Justice and Justice Kazerer had questions saying it's not just the practical considerations we need to take into account, we need to follow the principles of interpretation. But under, a modern, under modern principles, you have to avoid absurdity and, and paying attention to the practical consequences for the administration of justice are taking those things into account is relevant. It is part of the modern approach. Judicial resources are limited and we need to avoid multiple proceedings, multiple motions, multiple delays. That's all relevant. And when you interpret 648 according to modern principles, the consequences for the administration of justice are relevant and must be taken into account. Justice Obanswim talked about the self-represented. And I don't want to give evidence here, but I have been appointed to cross-examine self-represented uh, accused. And I think for a trial judge, especially when there's a jury involved, that takes a lot of time. And if you were to add to that a Dajnay Mentak motion that would have to be argued and there would have to be evidence, just in terms of the practical considerations, it's, it's, it would be quite a load in my respectful submission. I also think it would lead to a, an absurdity if 648 were to be construed as applying only after the jury was sworn. Because in some cases it could be weeks or even months before the jury is sworn. And 
the public doesn't have access to that information in a mega trial. But in many cases, if not most cases, these matters are heard before the jury is sworn. So it seems to me it's a bit arbitrary to say four or five days before the jury is selected, information could be published, which once the jury is selected, could no longer be published under 648. So I think a more restrictive approach is necessary to avoid uh, ambiguity and arbitrariness. When it comes to practical considerations, there's also a question. And as an aside, as respondents, we have basically the same position as His Majesty the King. But when it comes to deciding which motions would ordinarily or necessarily be dealt with, well, there's a discretionary issue there. It's not that clear uh, what constitutes ordinary or necessary. In terms of practical considerations, so you don't agree with the Crown on that? No, we said so in our factum. In our view, 648 applies before the jury is selected. We agree on that, but we don't agree on the idea of ordinarily or necessarily be dealt with in the absence of the jury. We don't have the same position on that issue. Also, we think that there would be unusual situations if the appellant's approach were to be taken, uh, if the voir dire was to be public before the jury was selected, there could be exceptional circumstances in which uh, a voir dire would have to be revisited or reopened once the jury was selected. What happens then? There would be a obvious inconsistency because the voir dire, if it were open before the jury was selected, but not after, but then what happens if the voir dire has to be reopened? So, it's my submission. Well, for example, a voir dire on the admissibility of a statement uh, for a witness who could not attend the trial. So, there would be issues of reliability and so on. But then other issues could come up during trial that would, could require a reopening of the voir dire. Well, the case law does provide for the reopening of a voir dire under exceptional circumstances. Exceptional. Yeah, exceptional, but that is still a practical consideration. What I'm trying to say is that the appellant's approach would run counter to the purpose or would limit the purpose of the provision and limit Parliament's purpose, Parliament's intent, 
and that would be one of the practical consequences of taking the appellant's approach to 648. And so it's our position that the provision applies whether it's before or after the jury is sworn because in practice, most of these matters are dealt with before the jury is selected. So what you're saying is that this should apply to all motions prior to jury selection. Well, coming back to the exam, and thank you for the question, Justice. I come back to the question of Justice Kasler about a change of venue. It's our opinion as respondents that a request for a change of venue can happen before the trial has started. because that deals there's a provision dealing specifically with change of venue and it comes before uh, it's so so basically what that means is that the trial has not yet begun a change of venue occurs before the trial has begun so those are my submissions thank you reply mr nadon the floor is yours. Hello, bonjour. Hello again. By way of reply, when my friends talk about self-represented accused, well, that problem is not exclusive to the issue at bar today. For the self-represented, I'd like to think, even though, I've, even though I'm not a criminal lawyer, I would assume that these issues crop up at all stages, at the preliminary inquiry and so on. So a self-represented accused doesn't have the same ability to argue their case. So it's not a problem that's exclusive to the situation before the court today. It's a more general problem that needs to be taken seriously, but it shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't tip the scales in this particular case. Well, the difference is that uh, in this case, there may be numerous motions. There may be multiple motions. That's the difference in a situation like this. I understand and I respect your position, but I can't agree. It's a more general problem of self-represented accused when there's a preliminary inquiry. Uh, the other participants should at least be able to help the self-represented accused out. My second reply is whether, when it comes to the question of whether a voir dire should have the same significance, uh, whether it's before the jury is selected or after. Well, obviously the conditions are different 
before and after the jury is selected. And why is that? Because of the distance, the, 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 the time frame uh, and the issues. Uh, and I, I believe that Parliament had that in mind and did not want to treat voir dires under 645 and voir dires under 648 in the same fashion because there's a difference in the time frame and in the effect of the uh, information. I'd like to call your attention to McIntyre, which is a leading case. And that case stands for the proposition that the public access should be maximized at every step of the proceedings. Another comment I'd like to make is that there was reference to the intense publicity around a trial. Well, in this day and age, it's impossible to have a jury that's completely immune to any influence from, reality, from the news in the modern world. Well, but you don't need to add to the problem. Well, that's true. There's the criteria of logic and reason that apply but there is no evidence to the contrary in this case there's no evidence that what's that Al, there's a problem in alberta all i want to mention all i wanted to point out was that for example in westray even in the most highly mediatized the most highly publicized cases we still manage to find jurors that are suitable and look at Paul, Paul Bernardo and other cases like that. There were juries sworn in all those cases. We always managed, you could have added Narbour. Yes, totally. There was a reference to small towns. Well, we need to have uniform rules, consistent rules. Are we supposed to have different rules for big cities, small towns, medium-sized cities? I think the rule has to be the same for all. À se rappeler également qu'à l'égard de la garantie de 11D, Dagenet nous rappelle... I think we also need to remember the guarantee under section 11D. The charter cannot be used as a shield against uncertain dangers. And so it's true that there are hypothetical risks here, but that's not what Dagenet stands for. And finally, my friends would try to convince you uh, that we need to avoid absurdity here, but the context of 648 is clear. The wording is clear. We're not saying, they're not saying that 648 isn't clear. They're saying that the law has evolved and so on. But I think we also have to consider that there's clear language, the purpose is clear, and it's not for the courts to step in here, it's for Parliament. These are political, not legal considerations. Thank you, Council. I'd like to thank Council for their arguments. The court will reserve judgment. Thank you.